RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. For property damage, what will be the worst event for total property damage? That would be, as people can imagine, a Tokyo earthquake or an earthquake under Los Angeles. Those scenarios will produce total property damage well north of a trillion dollars. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Karen Clark, and we're going to discuss the modelling of natural catastrophes. At graduate school, Karen developed a love of building computer models, and this led to her first job in the research department of Commercial Union Assurance. Whilst there, she pioneered the use of probabilistic modelling, which we will explain later, and uh, she quickly became the leading expert in the new field of catastrophe risk modelling. She subsequently founded Applied Insurance Research, which was the first catastrophe modelling company. And later, in 2007, she co-founded Karen Clark & Company, where she has continued to develop a new generation of catastrophe risk models, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Um, I've already mentioned that your your first job uh, was at Commercial Union. Um, But please, could you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? How did your background in, in computer modeling cause you to end up uh, in the world of insurance? As you mentioned, the position was research associate in a small R&D department where we were tasked with developing new analytical methods and models to help the company make more informed underwriting decisions. And I think at the time, that was probably a very unique situation for an insurance company to have an R&D department to be doing this kind of analytical work and modeling. So it just sounded perfect. Um, So it didn't matter to me if it was an insurance company or not. It just sounded like exciting work. So I happily joined. Excellent. And and before we descend into the detail of of, uh, catastrophe risk modeling, uh, could you summarize, first of all, so that we're all thinking of the same thing as we talk about it, um, at a very high level, what catastrophe risk modeling actually is um, and why, in general terms, it's important for insurers. In a nutshell, catastrophe modeling is the technology that provides the essential information for insurers to quantify, price, and manage their exposure to extreme events. And that is high severity, low frequency events like hurricanes and earthquakes. So what catastrophe models do is they give insurers complete views of how likely they are to experience losses of all different sizes on their specific portfolios of property business. And the models can also provide that for the industry as a whole based on total property values that are insured in specific regions. And uh, when we're talking about catastrophes, um, what what are we actually talking about? Presumably hurricanes, but what, what, what sort of catastrophes do you model? Well, it started out being natural catastrophes. So the first models were for hurricanes and earthquakes, and then they expanded to cover other types of perils like 
uh, tornadoes and uh, floods and hailstorms. So they expanded to cover all types of, again, natural hazards. And also, I should mention, this is a global technology. So it's you know, I say hurricanes, but it's also typhoons in Japan, uh, earthquakes in Australia. So it's a it, it developed into a global technology, starting with natural catastrophes. But actually, after 9-11, the technology expanded to man-made hazards as well, such as terrorism. And now there's some focus on cyber. So it's this um, very unique infrastructure that can be used for all types of extreme events. Um, the idea being those events, as I said, are relatively low frequency, but can lead to very severe financial implications. Brilliant. And I always love a bit of history and put things in, in context. So so when did the modelling of, of catastrophes start? Because I, I know that uh, uh, the, the great Lord's underwriter um, of the, the early 1900s, Cuthbert Heath, uh, he would collect maps of, of hurricanes and whatever in order to show the roots of historic hurricanes so that he could get a better feel for the areas of highest risk. Now, is that, does that classify as, as the modeling of, of catastrophes or, or is that too rudimentary? Well, not familiar with Mr. Heath's work, but it sounds like he generally had the right idea. I mean, that's the starting point for the catastrophe models. So to look at the historical data, say for hurricanes, and see where historical events have made landfall. And of course, that will give you an indication of where the risk is highest. But the idea behind the modeling is that that data is not enough. Okay, and what we have to do is we have to use that very limited historical data, again, because these are infrequent, particularly in specific geographic locations. So we start with the historical data, but in the models, we have to extrapolate from that and we have to utilize uh, more scientific expertise and other techniques, which we'll talk about to generate a much larger sample of potential future events to more credibly and robustly estimate the true risk of each peril by geographic location. So he had the right idea, um, but the modeling um, goes beyond that. And that's why we actually need modeling because the historical data alone is not sufficient. And um, for most of this podcast, we're gonna be discussing uh, hurricanes, uh, particularly hurricanes that will, will affect the, uh, the, the USA um, because that, the hurricane is, is the archetype uh, of, of the natural catastrophe, sort of the, the poster child, you could say, of natural disaster. Um, uh, we will mention other um, catastrophes um, a little bit later on, and kind of we already have mentioned them, but we'll expand upon it a little bit later. But, um, but when you started, so when you started at Commercial Union, um, how did insurers and reinsurers model their exposure to hurricane losses? Well, first of all, let's since you started way back at the 1900s with some history of underwriters, um, before I get to my time, also before my time, what I've heard is that insurers would get paper maps and put pins in the maps where they had insured properties. So they were tracking, you know, where their insured properties were relative to 
the coastline, for example, for hurricanes. But I heard that somewhere along the way, that process stopped. Okay, probably they ran out of pins <laughs> when, <laughs> when the population grew so quickly along the coastline. But then what happened is instead of focusing on the properties themselves that were being insured, the methods around when I started were based on premium. So a very popular approach was called the MFL, maximum foreseeable loss. And it was a very simple um, technique where you took for US hurricane, for example, you would take an insurer's premiums, property premiums by state, you'd bucket them by region. So you'd have Northeast region, Florida, Texas, and you would take those buckets of premium and multiply by a factor. So in Florida, your maximum foreseeable loss was two times the premium. In the Northeast, it was 1.5 times the premium. So it was a very simplistic formulaic process for estimating what the uh, MFL was. And then the underwriters had these curves that you could uh, put the put that number on and come up with how much they wanted to price uh, reinsurance. Because again, we are talking about Lloyd's um, where really all the catastrophe reinsurance was written in the mid to late 1980s. And um, so they would take this to say how they wanted to price the catastrophe treaty layers. And that was the most preferred approach. So, so that's extraordinary. So, so even in the 1980s, it was this sort of, uh, it's nothing more than a rule of thumb, is it really, as to, as to what loss might occur? It, it, there's no scientific basis to it at all, really. Well, right, that's correct. Although there was, I mean, these rules of thumb, you know, there was some logic to them. You know, the Northeast was going to be lower than Florida. So they were not completely you know, out of line, there was some basis for these differentiating factors. But the problem was, the real problem, Peter, was the U.S. had gone through a long period of inactive hurricane seasons. And there weren't many landfalling hurricanes um, in the 70s, for example, and in the early 80s. But at that same time, people were moving to the coastline in droves. And so the values exposed were increasing. But again, the insurers were not tracking that. They had stopped doing that because they ran out of pins. So they weren't tracking how their exposures were building up. And so they weren't pricing that into their premiums and therefore their premiums were too low. They were not reflecting the true risk. And um, that became very clear, obviously, when uh, Hurricane Andrew made landfall, which I think we'll talk about. We'll, we'll come on to Hurricane Andrew in, in just a moment. Um, but before that, in, in 1985, um, you obviously came in as a, uh, a, a computer programmer, computer modeler, but what was your job title? Would well, you... my, actually my graduate degrees are in economics and I have an MBA, um, but I was more on the quantitative side. So I was interested in econometric modeling and statistical analysis. So I was more like a quantitative economist. Okay. And, and, and in 1985, you, you wrote uh, a, a seminal paper that eventually changed everything 
uh, called um, A Formal Approach to Catastrophe Risk Assessment in, in Management. Um, I, I can guess what led you to, to, to write the paper, but if you could summarise in your own words what it was that was the sort of the, uh, the, the, the particular impetus for, for writing the paper, um, and also, in a nutshell, what it said. Well, sure. Well, in this research department where I was working, one of my first assignments was to try to figure out if the company had too much hurricane exposure. And I had mentioned these MFLs. So what had been done previously is that somebody, we don't know who, but somebody had assigned these MFLs and um, willing to lose and these very arbitrary numbers by county along the coastline for this insurer. And of course, nobody cared until the underwriters started coming up against their caps and they couldn't write any more business. And the underwriters started asking, where do these numbers come from? Why, why are we limiting what we can write? It's very profitable business. So I was assigned the task of saying, well, how much could the underwriters write? You know, what's a better approach? So that's when I got the idea. And so I started researching how we could tackle this in a different way. And I should give credit, there was a meteorologist in the industry who worked for travelers, Don Friedman, who had developed a hurricane model, if you will, but it was deterministic. So what you did with it is you just had 90 landfall points along the coast and you could run a hurricane there and see what your losses would be. But that's interesting information. But suppose I tell you, okay, if there's a cat five that hits Miami, your losses are gonna be a billion dollars. All right, well, that's interesting, but what I really wanna know is what's the chance of that? Okay, so if the chance is one in 10,000 or one in a thousand, I probably don't really care. But if the chance of that is one in 50 or one in a hundred, I do care and I wanna manage that. So the idea that what was really lacking with Don Friedman's model was the probabilistic nature that I, I need the probabilities to get my prices, my average annual losses, to determine how much reinsurance to buy. I need those probabilities. So what was really innovative in the paper and in the technique I developed was to take the limited historical hurricane data, look at the characteristics, develop probability distributions on those characteristics, on the science by location so that then I could build a model and use what we call Monte Carlo simulation to generate a really large sample of potential future hurricanes in accordance with their likelihood of occurring. So instead of looking at 90 landfall points, we look at many different landfall points and thousands of potential events, thousands of potential events, calculate the losses. And then that when you sort all the losses from most severe to least severe, that gives you the probabilities of losses of different sizes. So now the insurer could see, well, okay, how likely am I to have that billion dollar loss? Where am I likely to have it? And so you could manage it. So the real innovation and what cap, when you say a cap model today, it embodies those probabilities for every peril. And it gives this complete loss distribution that's called the exceedance probability curve, the EP curve. And that's the fundamental output of the model and the fundamental output of the first model that I developed 
uh, back in 1985. Okay, so so does does the model do two things then? Does the model show you what the, the absolute worst one is, but also actually what the the probable worst out? So is is probable maximum loss? Is 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 that is that what? effectively was the main outcome, but d- does it also show the extremes uh, as well? So d- does it allow insurers two different ways of seeing the data? It does show the extremes and you can quantify the extremes out to the one in a thousand, one in 10,000, you can go as far as you want. And that's again, what insurers looked at, it's called the tail of the distribution. So the catastrophe models are fundamental in estimating the tail of the distribution. I will say we never say worst case scenario because you can always make something worse. (laughs) Okay, so it's all in terms of probability. So don't ask me what's the worst case scenario, ask me what's the one in a thousand year loss, the one in 10,000 year loss. That's what the models provide. Now the probable maximum loss, it's really a misnomer and it hasn't done the industry good service, I think by calling uh, things the PML, which they assign to the one in a hundred or the one in 250, but they call it a probable maximum loss, but it's not. The one in 100 PML shows you the loss amount for which you have a 1% chance of exceeding. Okay, so it's just one point on that curve. So it's not the maximum of anything. It's just one number on the curve. But, you know, the industry likes the shorthand and, you know, the acronym. So it's PML is one of the primary metrics that comes out of the models. It, it, it loves the it loves the false confidence that comes with the word maximum. <laughs> well, that's a problem because insurers, uh, somehow they think they're never going to have a loss greater than that. And of course they have. And they do. And it's a surprise. And actually, we don't have time to go into this. That's why at KCC, we developed a whole new metric called the characteristic events that instead of giving the probability of loss or in addition to the probability of loss, it gives a probability of events. So now you can see your losses from the 100-year event. And typically, like the 100-year event in Miami would give you a loss well above your PML in Miami. And that makes it more concrete to insurers that, oh yes, I can exceed my PML. And the CE show them where and by how much. So you really to manage risk effectively should be looking at multiple metrics, not just one. But of course the PML is what rating agencies look at and regulators look at. So, but the models are richer than that. They provide a lot more information than that. Brilliant. So, in, in you wrote this article in uh, in 1985. Um, so, what happened after that? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm presuming, of course, that it was widely read in the insurance industry, and and the insurance industry changed all of its approaches uh, and started uh, adopting probabilistic uh, methods, as you were suggesting. Well, that would have been nice, but probably not as fun. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> there was still a lot of legwork to do to get the industry to adopt the models. I mean, you can imagine. Well, first of all, PCs hadn't even come on the scene yet. So, you know, this was, you have to even imagine, there was no email, there weren't even fax machines back in late 19, you know, mid 80s, that came a tad later. So um, when you said Monte Carlo simulation to an underwriter, of course, that's where they went every September to meet with their clients to discuss the reinsurance renewal. They 
could not imagine that this could be a technique that they could use. So it took a lot of nurturing and meeting with, and again, that was all at Lloyd's. Just an aside, I remember my first presentation to Lloyd's underwriters in the Lloyd's library, where I was an American carrying around this laptop and I was seven months pregnant at the time. So I think they might've thought it was a little bit of a joke, um, this whole thing. But to their credit, there were a few underwriters that embraced it. One, I have to throw out David Mann, who is a very famous underwriter in the Lloyd's market. He was one of the first adopters and there were a few adopters. And actually by the time of Andrew, we had taken on about 60 clients. There were a lot more reinsurers then, it was a lot more. So there were a lot of Lloyd syndicates and reinsurers, or maybe it was 30, 30, around 30 clients. But it was hard work to convince underwriters that you know this technique was going to help them because of course they thought the numbers were too high. And we've already mentioned Hurricane Andrew, and this is the appropriate time to uh, to, to come back to, to that particular hurricane. That was in 1992, uh, and Andrew was a Category 5 hurricane that struck Florida, went across Florida, went across the Gulf, and then hit Louisiana um, as well. So um, we're going to discuss Hurricane Andrew in a sort of a, a before... Uh, before, during and after sort of basis. So uh, starting with before um, the, the, the hurricane, what, what did the insurance uh, industry believe was uh, the worst possible outcome of a hurricane prior to Hurricane Andrew, sort of 1991, say? Well, the number they had in their mind was $7 billion. And that came from a publication that was put out by, it was called ARAC, and it was also a study done by Don Friedman. So there was a study that came out called, how would the industry handle two $7 billion hurricanes? Now the paper didn't say that was the maximum they could experience, but the industry kind of gravitated to 7 billion as being a very large event. I mean, prior to Hugo in 1989, the largest event had been a billion. And then Hugo itself was about 4 billion, a little less than that. So 7 billion sounded plausible. Um, so the number companies had in mind was seven. And then, Andrew occurred. Um, and as I understand it, it, it started out as a, a tropical storm and got bigger and bigger as, as, as the weekend progressed. Um, and you started doing some sums on the Sunday. Is that right? And, and what sums did you, how did you approach it? And, and what, what, what figures did you come up with? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was very interesting. On Friday night, the National Hurricane Center closed up regularly at 5 p.m., thinking that they didn't have to worry about Andrew, which was just a tropical storm at the time. But by 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, it was a Category 4, heading right toward Miami. So we, my small team that I had then, we congregated in our office and we started running scenarios. So you could use the models to run individual scenarios. So we were getting the track from the National Hurricane Center, putting it in our model and estimating what the losses would be. We had estimated kind of total industry property values by five-digit zip code. So that's what we were running it on. Um, and I should have said in context of the 7 billion, the largest loss coming out of our model 
before Andrew was 60 billion, that's 60 billion. Okay, so it was almost 10 times what the industry thought, which is again, why they didn't necessarily believe the number. Um, and that was from a direct hit on, on Miami. Fortunately, Andrew went a little south and hit south of Miami and it was very tightly wound. So it really just hit a town called Homestead and there were some neighborhoods, Kendall, and our estimates were that it could exceed 13 billion. And again, that was a fax that we sent out. There was no email at the time. And how did people respond to that when, when you started saying, insurers, we think this is gonna be 13 billion. Right, well, the biggest uproar was of course from our Lloyd's clients who immediately started calling us and complaining and saying we were totally loopy. Um, and some quotes that I can remember from this day is, I bet you five quid, it's not gonna be more than 6 billion. Why? Because Hugo hit Charleston, but Andrew missed Miami. But of course that underwriter hadn't calculated that the like county level exposures in Miami-Dade were more than the whole state of South Carolina. So they just didn't imagine, you know, the exposure buildup. And I, I liked another one, Homestead had an Air Force base. So it was a few mobile homes in an Air Force base. How much can it be? So even our own clients did not believe that it was gonna be that big. And of course it ended up being 15 billion. And then it was really easy for everyone to calculate, had Andrew hit 15 miles north, the losses would have been about 60 billion. And, okay. the, model, and the model was vindicated. Exactly what the model indicated. Most importantly, so, though, did you get your five quid? You know what? I never did. I got to track that guy down. <laughs> Claim it. Claim it I never did get that. <laughs> But, but I got much bigger license fees every year, so that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, is it fair to say then that, that Hurricane Andrew changed the world of insurers? It, it changed the way that insurers and reinsurers looked at, at risk modelling. And was that, was that the moment that, that catastrophe risk modelling became mainstream? Absolutely. And I would like to say overnight, but it wasn't overnight. It took about six months because it takes a while for the losses to develop. So it took the industry about six months to realize they were going to pay about $15 billion for Andrew. As that was happening, it, it, it really changed. Well, first of all, you had the Bermuda class of 1993. So you had, you know, the Renaissance, um, you know, Center Cat, you had all these reinsurers now start setting up in Bermuda because they knew that the reinsurance prices were going to go through the roof because they had just been so drastically underpriced. And the other thing that happened almost overnight, and again, we can take pride in this, is that remember before I said insurers only had to send their premiums to reinsurers. Well, Andrew was also a wake-up call that premiums are not doing the job and we need exposures. So in the next renewal year, the 1993 renewal year, it became required. And we developed a, a format called Uniseed where it became required for every insurer to give reinsurers at least county level property values, not premiums, county level property values 
by line of business in this specific format. And then in AIR's first product, CapMap, you could run that then and you could get a more accurate view of an individual insurer's loss potential by using those county level real exposures and not premiums. So that also people forget that, but that was also a fundamental change with Andrew is the data that insurers were sending to reinsurers. And on the basis that the the probabilistic model will use hundreds of data points of things which have never actually happened and indeed may never happen, how do you go about the whole validation process? How, How do you know that the model is accurate? Well, that's a great question. And that's why at KCC, and even going back to the time of Andrew, we, for every event, we show the insurers you know, what the model says for their actual book of business. Because when you think of the probability, this EP curve that I talked about, there are two major sources of uncertainty. One is the probability of an event at any given location. So there's uncertainty around that. The second major area is given an event, what are the losses going to be? That's also an area of uncertainty. Now, it's hard to reduce the uncertainty on the probability of an event because that is very reliant on the historical data, which is sparse. But with respect to the loss, given an event, if we validate the model with every event, like with Andrew, okay, we said this was a cat five that hit south of Miami. What did the model project and how accurate was it? And we do the same thing for Ida, for Laura, for, you know, all the storms. And that enables our clients to feel comfortable and confident with the model that it's accurate from that point of view. So that's one way to validate it. The other way that you validate the probability of an event, which is there's still a lot of uncertainty, but you kind of look at like the past hundred years of historical events, run the losses and create what's called like a historical EP curve. It's not a real validation, but it's a sense check. You know, so for example, we know that historically the worst hurricane is the 1926 Great Miami hurricane. Most of the models agree it will be about $150 billion loss today. So, and it should be around a hundred year event. It's one in hundred. So if your model has that, it's good. But you can imagine if your model says the one in a hundred is 50 billion, that would not be very credible. Or if it says it's, you know, 500 billion, that will probably not be credible either. So history does give somewhat of a guide to sense check the models, to validate them. But there are multiple ways and you have to look at the models from different aspects to validate them fully. And uh, you presumably have a pretty impressive team behind you. So kind of uh, presumably it's just not, it's not all modelers, they're meteorologists and all sorts of things. Do you want to give a shout out to your team? 
Sure. We have a very impressive team at KCC. I mean, I, I can't say enough about them. They are, of course, they have impressive backgrounds. I mean, all of our model developers have PhDs in their fields of expertise, which include atmospheric science, seismology, uh, pure physics, geotechnical engineering, wind engineering, earthquake engineering. So we have all the disciplines that are necessary, which is one of the unique things, Peter, about cat modeling is the multidisciplinary nature of it. So we have a very impressive team of scientists and engineers um, that, uh, that build and enhance the models. And as I said, I worked with you know, hundreds of scientists and engineers throughout my career. And, you know, the KCC team is very impressive. But you also need software engineers because we need to package our models into software applications. So we also have a very impressive team of technology experts, especially now, you know, software, technology, putting the models on the cloud, you know, all the things you need to do on the technology side. And then, of course, we have what we call our consultants or risk analysts that if companies want to extend the applications of the models or want us to run the models for them, we provide a lot of services. And, and presumably you need people who are brilliant at explaining it to clients, because I think the one thing which has come across to me um, through all of this is that it's, it's not just, you know, pump everything into the data and one figure comes out. It's, you know, there are a whole range of figures and different insurers will want the information tailored to their needs. Exactly. And that's another unique aspect of what KCC is doing. Because these models are so complex and they have become so advanced and with so many variables and, and it's hard for insurers to understand why the numbers look the way they do. I mean, you can explain all you want, but what we've done that's unique is we've made the model components completely transparent. You know, so our clients can see what we call the intensity. If they say, whoa, how do I have that billion dollar loss? you know, in Louisiana, how, how do I get that from the model? We can show them the intensity footprints. We can show them what the events look like. We can show them the damage functions, you know, what we're assuming with respect to those wind speeds on, you know, a particular type of property. So I do think this is the new, you know, how the mod, how do the models advance? The fundamental structure is the same. And that's withstood the test of time. But what we can do to improve the models is we can work on those components to make them more accurate. We can make them more transparent so our clients can really understand their risk a lot better than just seeing a number come out of a black box. And to what extent, I mean, with climate change, we obviously know that there are going to be more significant weather events in the future than in the past. Uh, and I appreciate, based on what you said earlier, that the models are not solely based on historical data. They're obviously, you know, the historical data is, is one element of a vaster range of data uh, that, that, that goes into to the, the models. But to what extent can you factor in the fact that the largest event of the next 100 years is almost certainly going to be significantly larger than the largest event of the last 100 years? And I think in terms of Hurricane Andrew, for example, we go back to that, 1992. At the time, it was the third most intense hurricane to make landfall in the USA. Now, 30 years later, it's only the seventh most intense hurricane. 
Um, and also I'm thinking, you know, the heat dome that, that formed over British Columbia um, last year and when temperatures, in, you know, in, in Canada, in British Columbia, got up to 50 degrees centigrade, 121 degrees Fahrenheit, I, I, which, which was regarded as a one in 1,000 in 1, year event. So that's a very long way of saying, how do the models take into account the fact that the future is not going to reflect the past? Well, that's an excellent question. And that's another area where the models are advancing and will be are different now, a little bit different than they were 30 years ago. And that is that we can't rely on historical data alone because the climate is changing, you know, the atmosphere is changing. So we need to incorporate that. So how do we do it? Well, one of the things we have to do is, first of all, we have to say, well, what are the impacts of climate change to date? Okay, before we look at the future, we say we've used 100 years of data to build our hurricane model, but we know temperatures have risen, you know, one and a half degrees since 1900. So what has that done? So at KCC, what our scientists have done is they've analyzed um, and kind of recast the historical data as if it were happening under the current climate. It's kind of like, you know, adjusting monetary values to what they would mean today. It's a similar sort of exercise. So we have to take what's happening today in the climate and apply it to the earlier years. And what we found for hurricanes, for example, is that the losses are about 11%, and this is built into our mile on average, about 11% higher you know, than they would have been had we not had climate change. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to do from our clients. What's happened to date? And then secondly, with ESG and all the pressures on insurers now, they can't just look at the upcoming year. They need to look at five, 10 years out, potentially out to 2050. So that's the other thing we're doing with the models is we're taking the latest scientific consensus from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And th those are great reports that they put out. They just put out AR6 and it has all the scientific consensus on what's happening with hurricanes. And it might be interesting, it seems counterintuitive, but the scientific consensus is that climate change is causing an increase in hurricane severity, but not necessarily frequency. And again, it seems like frequency is increasing, but that's you know, different seasonal and um, you know, decadal factors. So there is a scientific consensus on what's happening with severity. So we can take how scientists are projecting the temperatures are going to change in the future. And we look at the different scenarios. You know, the IPCC doesn't give you one scenario, but they give you multiple views based on, because the unpredictable thing is what's going to happen with emissions. Are we going to control emissions? Are we not? So there are basically five major paths that we can look at. And so what we do with the models is we say, based on those emission scenarios, what will that do to hurricane wind speeds and hence losses? So we provide our clients with views of what could happen by 2025, uh, 2030, and 2050 under these different scenarios. So you are right. We have to do more with the models now than we did you know, 20 or 30 or even 10 years ago. Now we have to do a lot more with looking at what the future could look like versus just waiting for the historical data to necessarily show us that. 
And um, we've already mentioned the fact that you do modeling for uh, earthquakes and tornadoes and uh, winter storms, et cetera, et cetera. Do you also do um, wildfires? Is, is that part of the modeling process as well? Absolutely. And again, we're now getting more into what I would call the more frequency perils, not necessarily the low frequency, high severity, but the high frequency, moderate severity, like severe convective storm, like wildfire, like winter storm. Um, you know, we had a $15 billion winter storm in uh, 2021. So and these wildfires and winter storms are causing pain to insurers as well. You mentioned the PML before, and historically, insurers wanted to look at the tail of the distribution, the extreme events, the PML, and that's the range of the distribution they focused on. But now the attention is turning more to the one in five year losses, the one in 10 year losses, because that's where we're seeing the most increase. We're seeing increases in the probabilities of $10 billion losses, $20 billion, $30 billion losses. Yeah, we're going to sometimes see the $150 billion loss, but in the meantime, we're seeing a $10 billion loss every other year. Um, you know, we're seeing a $40 billion loss every, you know, five or seven years. And these, while they're not going to upset the solvency for many insurers, they cause a lot of financial pain from year to year. And so these, we, we are modeling, and again, very accurately for the whole range of distribution, particularly wildfires and floods, those are two of the um, perils that are being most impacted by climate change. And uh, the final question in this main part um, of, of the podcast, um, I've heard that if Hurricane, I think you must have mentioned it earlier on, if Hurricane Andrew were to happen now and were to hit central Miami, it might cause a $200 billion loss. I appreciate extreme events is not necessarily where this works, but, but what is, in terms of what you've modelled, what is the most costly event that, that you have modelled so far? For property damage, what would be the worst event for total property damage? That would be, as people can imagine, a Tokyo earthquake or an earthquake under Los Angeles. Those scenarios will produce total property damage well north of a trillion dollars. Okay, so that's where you know we're looking at very um, severe losses. But earthquakes in Japan and even in California are not highly insured. So it's relatively low insurance penetration. So the insured losses from those are only gonna be a relatively small fraction. So if we get to your question on insured losses, the largest losses the industry can expect will be from US hurricanes. And again, we can go very extreme and we could create a trillion dollar hurricane. But if we're again talking about the one in 100, 250, 500 year return period losses, we're talking about losses on the order of 300 or $400 billion in short, um, you know, from a US hurricane. And where is that Miami or would it have to hit Miami or, or elsewhere? There are only three places where you could get a loss that large. One is Miami and the probability is highest in Miami. So that's where you're most likely to get that. You could also get one in Galveston, Houston, um, if it had exactly the right track, you know, going through the most populated area. And then, of course, in the Northeast, 
you could have one as well. The probability is the lowest there because the chance of uh, very um, category four or five hurricanes is lowest in the Northeast. So that is a third place you could have one, but it's also the place where the probability is the lowest. So, and when we're talking Northeast, we're talking New York. Yeah, New Jersey, New York, uh, and you know Boston, all the Northeast corridor. Right. Well, let's hope that none of those happen during our lifetimes. <laughs> we, we could do without those. So finally, Karen, um, what, what one bit of advice? Um, I mean, you've now been involved in insurance for a number of years. Um, what, what one bit of advice would you give someone who's thinking about becoming involved in the insurance world? Well, number one is don't have preconceived notions about what it's like to work in a particular industry or a particular company. Focus on the nature of the work you'll be doing day in and day out, and then pick a career path or a company or an industry that enables you to do the work you love. You know, it's obvious the insurance industry doesn't ring bells of, oh, that's a cutting edge, you know, industry that maybe young people are flocking to, but there are just a lot of really interesting work being done in insurers. I mean, insurers have to protect society from climate change, from extreme events, from all of these. So there's a lot of fascinating work that is being done. And so I, I mean, my number one advice would be just analyze what you're going to be doing day in and day out and not what the name of the company is. Karen, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.